This is episode 40. You're listening to the All Hazards Podcast, where we take you behind the scenes to give you exclusive access to emergency managers who've been on the front lines of some of the nation's most difficult challenges. Where we have candid conversations about the challenges facing all emergency managers, no matter how big or small the community. Here's your host, Sean Boyd. Hello, and thank you once again for tuning in to the All Hazards Podcast. Today, we're focusing on urban search and rescue, and our guest has some serious credentials. Deputy Chief Larry Collins is not only the Cal OES lead for USAR, but he was instrumental in its early progress. But he's also been deployed on countless high-profile USAR missions, including 9-11, Northridge Earthquake, Loma Prieta Quake, the Japan earthquake that led to the Fukushima disaster, and the Haiti earthquake, and so many more, including the recent floods and mudslides in Montecito. We'll have all that more right now. So we're sitting here with Deputy Chief. I'm going to say the whole thing, Larry. Okay, (laughs) so this is Deputy Fire Chief, Cal OES Special Operations and Hazardous Materials Section. Deputy Fire Chief, Larry Collins. Thanks for being here. That's a mouthful. It is. That it is. Well, it's good to have you here. Um, you and I just recently spent some time in Santa Barbara County uh, on the uh, Montecito floods, mudslides that happened there. That was quite a mess. Still is. It was, and uh, it um, was not unexpected that we would have some uh, significant mud and debris flows after that uh, Thomas fire had gone through, and if everyone keeps in mind, that was really just the first significant storm that occurred after the fires, and look what it did. So so there's uh, more on the way, possibly, depending on what the weather does. We have to be prepared for the, uh, the entire um, burn area there and some of the other recent burns to have mud and debris flow issues for the next three, four, five years. And all it really takes is what you saw in Santa Barbara and Montecito that night was uh, several inches of rain, uh, some of it coming in a burst where you had, and reportedly, I think it was a half an inch in five minutes. Yeah. If you get that kind of rain intensity and you have those kinds of burned slopes above you, you're going to start mobilizing a lot of mud and debris and things that you wouldn't think would move. And you saw it going Mm -hmm. into those neighborhoods. So it's part of the cycle, and it's happened in other communities we're lucky in California, I think, that the rain stopped when it did, because think about how that would have played out if the rain had continued for another day or so, if that had, or if that had been an atmospheric river-type scenario. You know, we had a, a glimpse of what could happen when you get those kind of conditions occurring. Right. I, I, I suspect it would have been significantly more dramatic, and I have never ever seen anything like this before with not only the the amount of mud and debris that came down but the boulders the massive size of those boulders and the damage that they did on their way in unless you're standing there next to these things and among the boulders you don't realize really how impactful it is it is very much being like uh, being below a dam that's collapsing or being a uh, in the path of a tsunami. Either one of those three events, mud and debris flows, tsunamis, or a dam failure, you don't want to be in the path because oh, no. the force of the water is really colossal and um, you're 
survivability is really not very high versus some other swift water rescue scenarios that we come in contact with. When you have that kind of mud and debris flowing uncontrolled, especially at nighttime, survivability for victims is is really difficult, and uh, rescue operations are doubly difficult. And we would have seen that play out had those con- uh, rains continued. The rescue work that was done was fantastic. The pre-positioning of resources before that rain came in that night was exactly what needed to happen. And had those resources not been pre-positioned, they, the first responders would have been working without some of that help, and it would have taken a long time to get some of the uh, specialized right. resources in. And I think that needs to be emphasized more. I haven't heard enough of uh, enough praise, really, quite honestly. People are very quick to criticize, but when it comes time to, to lay praise, that is something that I think went really sort of under the radar. And I know that that resources were prepositioned the day before all this went down. It's almost as if there was a crystal ball. And the fact that these resources, personnel, the equipment, was there and ready and waiting, perfectly timed. And when the time came, they were able to get to those people as soon as they possibly could. Had they not pre deployed these things, they would have been coming from Southern California, some from Northern California, and it would have taken them a lot longer to get there. Yeah, we had uh, one full regional USAR task force in place from Santa Barbara County, and um, we brought, uh, on request, Santa Barbara County officials, one of the Cal OES Wolfwater Flood uh, Search and Rescue teams, and that was happened to be from Long Beach Fire Department. Mm. They came up and pre-positioned. Um, there were other closer um, swift water flood search and rescue teams, but if you remember, uh, uh, south of there and uh, Ventura and LA counties, they had recent, just you know, within a week or two, they had, were fighting fire, yep. and so they had recent burns that they had to be considering potential for mud and debris flows. The decision by Region One was to deploy was to deploy the the Long Beach Swiftwater Flood Search and Rescue Team along with the RTF from Santa Barbara County, and they pre-planned it the day before. They drove those streets. They knew what the impact areas were likely to be if they got the big rain burst. And sure enough, I mean, some of those resources were just a couple blocks away from where the worst mud and debris flows occurred while it started happening. Wow. And so they were right on the scene, having already assessed it and went right to work. And uh, Santa Barbara County officials are have already developed contingency plans based on what we already knew and what they learned in that event for potential um, mm. you know, future events. So when they get rain um, predicted, they have a matrix now that they're looking at to determine how much pre-deployed resources they're going to request and how they're going to position it. So there's been a lot of work done on the, on the preliminary pre-planning. And some of that was based in years past the station fire in Los Angeles County, which was the biggest wildland fire in LA County history. There was a massive similar pre-planning um, strategy uh, that occurred and it paid dividends when they did get some mud and debris flows. Um, and then last year, Santa Barbara County had the uh, El Capitan Canyon mud and debris flow that washed away a lot of uh, vehicles and some structures and uh, trapped um, victims mm-hmm. just you know just miles from where the Thomas fire um, ended up burning. So they had a good experience, and they knew and they trained 
for this, you know, for several years, they we know that money debris flows are part of the matrix of right. uh, wildland brush fire response. So you are talking as though you are very, very familiar with a lot of these incidents, very dialed in. Give us a little bit of background uh, about uh, your your history with the fire department and then subsequently with Cal OES. What's your background? On the way, Chief Collins reflects on his time spent with the LA USAR team responding to the 2010 Haiti earthquake and the story of the singing victim, a woman who survived six days buried in the rubble. Also, what he and others in the emergency response community learned from the 2011 Japan earthquake and resulting tsunami. But next, Larry talks about his experience with LA Fire and his 20 years as captain of USAR Task Force 103. I was fortunate to spend 37 years in the Los Angeles County Fire Department. 20 of those years, I was the captain of the Central Urban Search and Rescue um, Fire Station called USAR-1, and then later on it was called USAR Task Force 103, Mm. where every day our uh, job was to respond to technical rescues all across Los Angeles County, everything that happened from cliff rescues to trench collapses, building collapses, Major alarm fires, They were uh, that unit was automatically sent on all second their alarm fires. And so literally crisscrossed L.A. County every day in training and response. And I uh, was uh, fortunate to be involved with uh, the early development of swift water rescue in California in those years. I actually taught with uh, Director Giladucci. We were swift water rescue instructors back in those days mm. as this was being developed as a formal discipline in the California Fire Service. Um, we both uh, taught with some of the luminaries of Swift Water Rescue back in those days and helped develop um, formal standardization of Swift Water Rescue approaches in uh, some of our local government fire departments, developing Swift Water Rescue teams that previously didn't exist. After the events of the floods of 1992, um, I was heavily involved in develop, helping a group of people uh, from LA County Fire develop new Swift Water Hilo um, evolutions that have now become standardized. Hmm. Experimenting with helicopters, basically dangling firefighters below uh, the copters on ropes, and later on using hoist cables to actually put them in the water with copters moving downstream with victims, especially in flood control channels, which can move nearly freeway speeds in parts of uh, Southern California that have those big flood control channels. Mm -hmm. And it creates just a lot of difficulties. Then the urban search and rescue, I was, you know, I was around as a fairly new firefighter when the Whittier earthquake happened, and that spun into urban, what's now called urban search and rescue. Um, and again, D- Director Giladucci was involved in those early days too, so I worked closely with him when I was in LA County. And this concept of thirty-person teams in California that was envisioned in the nineteen eighties with Director Giladucci who at that time was a Cal OES uh, assistant chief and later on deputy chief in special ops, uh, predecessor to what I do now, Mm. um, was instrumental in developing these teams and helping local government fire departments uh, get this concept going and working with the state. And then later on, after the Loma Prieta earthquake happened, uh, the Congress directed FEMA to nationalize that concept, which really became what is now the um, state national urban search and rescue task forces of which there's 28 in the country, eight of which are based in California because of the hazards here. And largely for through the efforts of director Giladucci, who had that vision early on, I've been very 
um, blessed to have experience in uh, dozens of major disasters. Yes, you have. I, I'm telling you, Larry, I'm looking here at the list, okay? This was a list <laughs> that Chief Zagara sent out uh, when you joined us here in November of 2016. It says here that uh, you've been involved in rescue operations, urban search and rescue operations for Hurricane Sandy, Katrina, Ivan, Ike, Rita, Francis, Gustav, and it goes on and on and on. Uh, you were involved in the uh, with USAR uh, Task Force CAATF2 deploying for uh, the Nepal earthquake disaster. The two thousand and that was in uh, twenty ten. No, twenty fifteen. Twenty fifteen. Yeah. Twenty fifteen. Uh, the two thousand eleven Japan earthquake and tsunami catastrophe. The twenty ten Haiti earthquake and nineteen ninety four it's Northridge. And it goes on. I mean, Oklahoma City, 9-11, you you have definitely been dabbling in disasters, I would say. It's been an education every single day, just as it is here. You know, we, I think, have improved the response capability in California and the local government fire departments by light years from when I came on the fire department Mm -hmm. in 1980, where literally, if you went to a trench rescue, for example— you completely, where I came from in L.A. County, you winged it. There was no formal training for it. There was no swift water rescue training. Um, I nearly drowned in 1980 during a swift water rescue incident, and I didn't have training for it. We just were doing the best we could, and that's mm. what a lot of fire departments in California were doing. There were very few um, what you would call heavy rescue or specialized rescue units in local government fire departments in those days. And the awareness of... The dangers of those events and seeing whether it's watching New York Fire Department and some of their specialized units do great work in collapse scenarios or and seeing that there is a, a methodology that can be adopted and by fire departments to make your rescue operations more effective and safer for your personnel. It has been a, a sea change in, in, um, in the way we approach technical rescue and urban search, what's now called urban search and rescue, emergencies and disasters. So the the service to the citizens has vastly improved. The f- speed with which we conduct these search and rescue operations and and really, more importantly, the, the knowledge and experience that the personnel have now, especially if you go to a lot of disasters and you're on some of these teams and you're, or you go to training that simulates that, you come into a, a disaster, uh, an emergency or a disaster that could be very unusual, like a trench rescue or a confined space rescue, and instead of having the deer in the headlights look and no basis t- for to start the process and not knowing how this is supposed to look and where it should go, and that's really how it was in 1980 when I came on the fire department. That's kind of how it was in technical rescue right. in a lot of cases. Now it's like you have specialized units that have experienced personnel. They know what to do. They've practiced it. In California, a lot of our teams are so experienced that they've been there and done that over and over again. So it's just like fighting fire. You know, after after you've been you know in burning buildings a lot, you have a sixth sense about it. You develop an awareness of what's likely to happen next. You can that increases your ability to do strategic planning and tactical operations more hmm. effectively and. and and be prepared for the contingencies when things go wrong and have a backup plan for that. So it all comes down to us being prepared. We're really at the forefront of of this in many, many ways. It is impressive. 
Coming up, Larry Collins talks about the changes the Urban Search and Rescue Program has undergone since its inception here in California in the early 1990s. Plus, people scoffed at the possibility of a catastrophic tsunami on the California coast, but something changed their minds. What is it? But first, the rescue of Jeanette, the woman trapped for six days in the rubble of the Haiti earthquake. Taking a look at the um, the 2010 uh, Haitian earthquake, we just passed the eighth anniversary uh, in January. What do you remember about that? When you went in, what did you? What were you thinking? And then when you left, what did? What do you think back about what you learned? Well, of course, by the time Haiti occurred in 2010, um, the LA County team and the other USAR task forces in California had had quite a bit of experience with earthquakes and other large disasters like that. The planning for catastrophic events in California had been well on its way. The Southern California earthquake, catastrophic earthquake plan, I was involved in that. And so we were, you know, clearly thinking about those kinds of events in California and Los Angeles and, and the Bay Area and other places that have potential for that kind of damage. That specific day, we actually had been training with the Long Beach Fire Department's USAR fire station at the Queen Mary. Oh, yeah. That same morning, we were practicing confined space rescue down in the engine room of the Queen Mary. Great training. We were actually driving back up the Long Beach Freeway on the unit, and uh, my pager went off. It showed a pretty powerful earthquake in the 7 range that was located very close to Port-au-Prince, and it was a shallow earthquake. And while we're going down the freeway, I told my engineer, "This is that does not sound good. And so what would, did you immediately think that you would end up, that you were pretty sure that you would be deployed or how does that work? Yeah, I actually called our tech ops session and said, Hey, did you see that? You know, that if this is close into Port-au-Prince, it's shallow. And because uh, California task force two is also one of the two uh, international urban search and rescue task forces for the U S government, we knew that that in our sphere of influence for the U S and could be a event that could re- result in U.S. the U.S. sending mm-hmm. uh, and you went. Teams down there. How long did it take you to get there? Well, we actually um, talked about it on the freeway, got to the fire station, turned CNN on, and right off the bat, they were airing video that someone had shot looking out of the, one of the airplanes on the tarmac. Someone had uh, took his camera out and was shooting, and you saw this massive black cloud rising above the city of Port-au-Prince. That could be the result of nothing less than hundreds of buildings collapsing at the same time. So we pretty much knew at that point, this is really, really bad. And it was within hours that we were uh, activated to deploy to uh, Haiti. So Mm -hmm. we were on the plane uh, later on that that evening and um, arrived early the next morning in Haiti and to Really, I mean, it was catastrophic. Everywhere you looked, you literally could not count the number of structure collapses. Your eye could not Mm. take it all in. You couldn't count them all. That's how bad it was in Haiti. How do you know what to do first? Well, there's a standard approach. Um, You know, we use incident command system here in the U.S., and uh, especially in California. There is a, a form of incident command system internationally it's an agreed-upon collaborative system that's based on incident command system developed in the U.S., including the way buildings are marked and so forth, and wide area search and so forth. And there's a, but there's a, 
it's an international collaboration. And all these countries that have deployable search and rescue teams or urban search and rescue teams, they get together. They have a group called the, um, the INSEROG, International Search and Rescue Advisory um, group, and they develop these international standards. And that includes the first urban search and rescue team coming in from another country, setting up a reception center at the airport that's been designated as the incoming. That, and that's to guide the other teams as they come in to, to direct them where they're supposed to be. And again, we never, we're just like in ICS here in the U.S. We're not coming in as a team to someone else's jurisdiction and taking over their incident. We're there to report to them and handle the needs that they identify for us. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what happens internationally, too. So we got uh, our assignment to set up a base of operations at the U.S. Embassy while uh, the rest of the team started going out and conducting search and rescue operations in our assigned part of Port-au-Prince, which was the downtown area that included the presidential palace and a lot of the government buildings and a lot of the high-rises. And the the central part of Port-au-Prince was was the area that we had responsibility for. On the way down there, we just saw buildings collapsed everywhere and saw how devastating this earthquake was. Mm. So I think people need to know that if you happen to be listening to this maybe at home, uh, you Google it, uh, you Google the Haiti uh, earthquake, you pull up the Wikipedia page, and there's a picture of you in a rescue helping a woman out who had been buried for a number of days. Oh, yeah, that might have been Jeanette. That's what I'm thinking of. The one who was singing? The singing woman, yeah. Tell me about that. That was incredible to me when I heard about that. Roger still believes his wife, a bank worker, just might be alive. Reporter Bill Neely with Sky News. He rushes in every time ground is cleared. This time, someone hears a noise. He calls for silence, then for his wife, Jeanette. Okay, she's there, she's alive, he says. That kind of tells you a little bit about survivability profiles in collapsed buildings. That was that was six days after the earthquake. She had been in a uh, walking out of a bank into a parking structure, reinforced concrete, multi-story uh, parking structure that collapsed during the earthquake. She reached up and tried to hold on to the top of a parking sign during the shaking while she's in the first floor of the parking structure. And then it collapsed around her, and it crushed both of her hands on the sign and mm. throw, threw her down. So she ended up laterally laying there as the building collapsed around her, and she ended up in a survivable void space. So how did you find Jeanette? Uh, the crew from Sky News, British, which is a British broadcasting uh, news group, flagged us down and said, hey, we are talking to a woman back over here that's in this collapsed parking structure. And so um, we walked, you know, moved into that area, and sure enough, there, there, was, she was. there was Jeanette talking to us. Wow. Her husband knew where she was when the quake happened. He knew she was at that bank. So he went to that site, and he had spent five-plus days, nearly six, six days at that point, looking for her. He did not give up. He was there day and night and trying to convince heavy equipment operators to come in there and start pulling debris off. And so they worked with some heavy equipment operators who did a very good job of dissecting the par- parts of the parking structure that they could and parts of the bank around it. Just And they would stop every once in a while, and they would let some of the local citizens run in there and listen and talk mm-hmm. and tap. And this little boy 
who did that heard Jeanette's voice. Mm. And he says, I hear a voice. And sure enough, her husband comes over and that's his wife in there. Then a message for her husband. Even if I die, I love you so much. Don't forget it. Amazing. She was about seven or eight feet down, laterally and vertically down from where we were. She was up. We could see her through a crack Mm -hmm. that was like three inches wide and four inches, five inches long. And um, could hear her down there. And uh, that's who the Sky News people have been talking to. So we did what we normally do in that situation, isolate it, get everybody back, come up with a strategy. You know, they had already been removing some debris, but she was under the four-story part of the parking structure. Wow. So there was a pretty uh, vigorous discussion about how we're going to get her out. The best way to get to her at that point without causing her to be killed by a secondary collapse was to tunnel down, straight down, in the parking lot area just outside the building um, perimeter and then tunnel laterally across to her to get to where she was. That was, we all agreed that was the best way to do it. Mm. In her case, we started with this huge excavator, which, you know, it can get us close, but we don't want to get too close to where the victim is. And I, I and a firefighter named Pat had already been talking to her and he had he was a paramedic uh, who had been feeding her uh, some saline through a IV tubing that we wrapped around a stick and p- put it in there. Actually, placed it in her mouth because she her hands were both crushed and she could not move her hands. She was pinned, right? She was pinned with both mm-hmm. arms pinned, and so even if she had had water with her, she would not have been able to get to it. She, she laid there for six days without a drop of water wow. and no food in total darkness with the aftershocks <sighs> and everything. And she's talking to us in some English and, and in Creole and French a little bit. Hang in there, Jeanette. All right, Jeanette, we're almost there. Basically, long story short, I laid there talking to her the whole time, and they brought the, the uh, excavation, the excavator, the scoop, right up to my back, like literally inches from my back, and made its first downward pass. And the agreed-upon scenario was if, if her situation changes in there at all or if she feels pressure, she was going to yell at me and I was going to throw my hand up. Mm. And the operator, we already briefed the operator very closely that, hey, if you see that hand go up, stop everything. And it, it actually worked very well. It got us down about seven or eight feet down and get down below where she was. And it got us the ability to laterally tunnel to get to her and then... After all that was done, the two we sent two firefighters in there who had to hand cut her out of there with sawzalls and an airbag and some other devices, and we were able to free her hands, which were crushed. Mm. And they packaged her up in there and then start to slide her out. Within three hours of first hearing her voice, she emerges. One, two, three. Her first words, thank you, God, and then an astonishing moment. And that's where... As you've seen probably in the video, uh, you know, six days later when we slide her out into, well, it started in the daytime, but now it's nighttime. So she comes out under starlight and the whole crowd of the neighborhood is surrounding this site now because it's the only lights around because we have floodlights up for the rescue and so forth. So a lot of people are watching around the whole perimeter of this thing. And as we pull her out, you know, Jeanette starts belting out this 
song. The words of her song, Don't Be Afraid of Death. She told me she always thought she'd survive, but she wondered why this had happened to her. And she starts belting that song out. Six days in the building, no food, no water, hands crushed, and she doesn't stop. And she just continues to sing to the point where her husband starts singing with her. And then the crowd all, all around us that knows the song, they start singing with her in unison. And it's like, you know, we had firefighters crying, you know. I mean, you couldn't help it. Tears running down your face because it was like that powerful an event. That, that woman was that strong to survive that. And her husband, their love was such that he never left her side. You know, I, I, I don't know of a more powerful experience than that. A lot of faith. A lot of faith, I think, on the part of everyone, starting from her being buried and still alive and knowing that she was going to get out based on her faith, to all of the rescuers, to her husband, to everyone around. They all had faith. You guys all had faith. Boy, that, if that doesn't tell you what faith is, I don't know what does. That is so true. And it's, it's that thing that drives a lot of what we do is that you want to give everybody a fighting chance. People have talked about some of the expense that is incurred and sent these teams out and how relatively few rescues there, there are made in some cases and in many cases, uh, many others. But it's not a factor of that. It's like, imagine yourself in that situation or someone in your family. and Don't you want them to have the best chance to get taken out alive? Right. And hmm. Another point made by one of our um, teams in uh, Nepal, do we want to live in a country where you have a neighbor buried under a mountain of debris and, and no one's going to lift a hand to get them. No. We want a, we want a, a nation and a, and, a, and a world where your neighbors come and help you, no matter who you are, what color you are, where you're from, and what uh, language you speak, what religion you are. None of that matters at that moment. It's another human. So, What do you think you learned there? On the way, Chief Collins gives me a friendly smack and how the 2011 Japan earthquake changed the mindset about tsunamis in California. Well, first, the catastrophic event can happen. We've been doing a lot of planning in California for catastrophic earthquakes and other large-scale events that we haven't had in our lifetime, uh, mostly as residents in California. We know 1906, they had a big earthquake in San Francisco. Uh, we know that there have been other big earthquakes, including through prehistory, in this area and uh, along the southern San Andreas and other earthquake faults. It can happen, and it's going to happen at some point. Um, Catastrophic-level events are the thing that we're largely really planning for now. You know, we've had so many disasters in California that they become not routine, but we become well-practiced at responding them, to them. So it's the catastrophic level where you lose entire systems, lifelines are destroyed, transportation is taken out you're left with your own devices for a long time and and in some cases if you have wind driven fire behind it it's going to be a change it's going to change the equation for rescues even because a fire coming behind you when you're in that situation is going to be that much worse in Haiti they didn't have conflagrations but they had a lot of collapsed buildings and we know while we may not have 300,000 collapsed buildings in California in one event the thousands or hundreds that we could have are going to challenge our, our rescue systems. And we need to be prepared to go for, uh, for weeks, round the clock, 
giving every single person that we can the best chance of surviving this thing and coming out alive. So, And we know we can do it. We have the resources to do it. We know that if it's big enough, we're going to have to request international teams to help the California Regional Youth Star Task Forces, the eight state national youth star task forces that we have here, the other 20 state national urban search and rescue task forces from around the country that we'll be requesting. Um, and then the several dozen international nations that provide, um, you know, nations that provide international search and rescue teams. We, at some point, may need to request all that assistance and be able to use it effectively and quickly to give everybody the best chance. That's really what we're trying to do, whether it's mm. a tsunami, earthquake, or some other big event that causes that kind of level of disaster. Real quick here, I'm going to ask you a couple uh, – I'm going to ask you a question about a few of these disasters. Um, so with the Japan earthquake and tsunami in 2011, what did you learn there? You know, if you go back to when I first came on the fire department in Southern California, no one talked about tsunamis down there. Uh, even in, even in my professional job, you know, we we didn't talk about tsunamis much at all until a certain professor named Costa Sinalakis from professor, uh, USC, professor of engineering, started uh, looking at what had happened in Papua New Guinea after a big earthquake that caused an underwater landslide that resulted in a tsunami. And he pointed out that the Southern California coast, while it doesn't have the normal subduction zones that you would associate with tsunamis up in the Cascadia region, for example, they do have huge underwater landslide zones and places that he had, he and others had discovered that had already slid and probably from earthquakes and pointed out that we could have near source tsunamis in uh, Southern California that we never expected. And that was, you know, several years before Japan, but a lot of people uh, kind of, um, laughed a little bit about what we were doing because they couldn't envision uh, that kind of an event happening in Southern California. And sure enough, when uh, 2011 rolls around, uh, actually on the day of the uh, Japan earthquake, the LA County uh, team, California Task Force 2, which is also called USA2 internationally, had just literally come back from the Christchurch earthquake in New Zealand mm. that night. They just arrived. We had the welcoming ceremonies. And three hours later, the Japan tsunami uh, earthquake happens, followed by the tsunami. And so within hours, uh, we're redeployed to uh, Japan. Gosh. And getting there, I'll say this. Uh, it literally looked in the Bay of Ofonado. I would have, you know, if you... <laughs> Could imagine when you're a kid watching those Japanese creature movies, mm -hmm. you know, watching that creature come out of the bay and start throwing things around and tossing buildings around and Rodan and, you know, Godzilla, Godzilla <laughs> fighting in the bay. And, you know, that's what the Bay of Ofonado looked like. Mm. Ships tossed nearly a mile inland. Ships everywhere you could you could see. You know, uh, the tsunami run up had pushed buildings miles up from the city. And um, so this proved to you, and it was word to the others who kind of scoffed at the idea of a tsunami in Southern California. Well, yeah, I mean, we actually had to delay our response for a little bit to make sure that California wasn't going to have a tsunami disaster from. Japan. Mm -hmm. So there was some waiting and there was, as you know, some uh, tsunami activity on our coast as a result when, it, when that wave came across uh, 500 miles an hour across the sea and got here. But it shows you what a near source tsunami can do and how you don't have much time to get out of the way of it. 
and the places you think might be um, safe haven also may not be because they had identified safe haven spots from their long history of tsunamis in that country. And they still had, I saw areas that were designated as safe havens that got wiped out. So the there was the scientists themselves underestimated how big a tsunami could be there. What did you learn in the 94 Northridge earthquake? Northridge uh, really crystallized why the Urban Search and Rescue Task Force and system had been developed. I was on duty in the 1987 Whittier earthquake. I was a firefighter on a ladder truck company in Norwalk, six miles from the epicenter. And when that quake happened at 6 in the morning or 5.30 in the morning, (laughs) you know, we didn't have drop, cover, and hold back in those days. No one did that. Uh, I was standing up, hanging on to a pole in the dorm, watching everything bounce, and the guys trying to stay on their feet and fire trucks were bouncing around inside the apparatus room and we went out after the quake stopped and did the things that we knew had to be done uh, pull the pull the fire trucks out start going out into the district doing a damage survey and we came across several fires and over in Whittier nearby they were coming across collapsed buildings at that time in 1987 we didn't have training for collapsed structure search and rescue operations it didn't really exist in our department, in LA County Fire, and most mm. departments didn't have any form of collapse search and rescue awareness or training. There wasn't a methodology for it. There was uh, early stages of what became called heavy rescue systems, which some luminary, um, visionary figures in the California Fire Service had been working with Cal OES and State Fire Marshal's Office to develop this program or this uh, course called Rescue Systems One. Or called it was called heavy rescue at the time, and uh, but we didn't have that in a in eighty seven the winter quake we didn't have that if we had if that had quake had happened at ten in the morning where the malls were full the Whitwood Mall in Whittier the parking structure collapsed but nobody was in it because it was early morning if that had been mid mid morning or afternoon a lot of people would have been trapped or killed and we would not have known how to get them out. Mm. The firefighters, as you know, they, they'll, make, they'll make things work and do the best they can, use common sense, and a lot of firefighters have construction background. We would have done all kinds of good things to get people out, but it would not necessarily have been the right way or the fastest way, and it certainly would not have been the methodical way we do structural collapse now. So, and that seems to me to be sort of the message here. I mean, we have been talking about, you know, Japan and Northridge and uh, Haiti and and all these other places. But it seems to me that here in California alone, there has been such a change in the way urban search and rescue is handled, specifically because now there's a plan. Over the last 20 years, a lot has changed. It's light years difference. In Northridge, uh, so after the Whittier quake, that's when L.A. County and uh, others, including Director Giladucci, started really consolidating what the state of California had known we need to do and started this talking about this concept of teams. And some of the progressive fire departments started developing what became heavy rescue stations or urban search and rescue fire stations. And this concept of the task force, urban search and rescue task force, which Mark Giladucci really was a pioneer of. He had envisioned 30-person teams that would be stationed around the state with equipment, caches, ready to go. Sure enough, Loma Prieta happens two years later. 
in the Loma Prieta earthquake showed that that's exactly what we need. Cal OES had also been pioneering what they call HERF units, which were uh, combination fire trucks and heavy rescues. And they had several of those stationed around the state as uh, prototypes. And some of those were uh, involved in the Loma Prieta earthquake operations, including the Orange Count, the one that had been lent to Orange County or assigned to Orange County, mm-hmm. that they flew up. And those personnel were involved with the rescue of Buck Helm, assisting the Oakland Fire Department in the rescue of Buck Helm at the IA-880 collapse. Four days later, pulled the guy out alive, and then he died due to crush syndrome um, complications later on, which mm-hmm. another thing we learned was crush syndrome. But Loma Prieta crystallized the need for these formalized teams, and really within two years, these teams were in place. Uh, Mark Giludici was very instrumental in California being ready, and when Congress said, FEMA, you need to create a national system, we were all, had already been working on it. And uh, that's why, in large part, California ended up with eight of the 28 national, uh, state national urban search and rescue task forces in California. And sure enough, LA County's team was operational along with Menlo Parks in the first actual deployment of FEMA USAR task forces or state national task forces to Hurricane Aniki in 1992. Mm. So, you know, within three years of Loma Prieta, these teams were operational and were being deployed to other states. And then Northridge happened, and right, it's right in our own backyard. And uh, Mark Giladucci at the time was the special operations chief and uh, was working closely with the director, Dr. Andrews. They were uh, very proactive. They deployed all the eight they activated all the eight uh, state national teams in California, had them going toward L.A. Obviously, L.A. City Fire Department was impacted and couldn't deploy their whole normal 70-person team. But L.A. County, once once I got off a copter after doing damage surveys and, deter- and confirmed to our fire chief that in the county areas, most of the collapses were not uh, – we don't have big malls collapse and so forth. And we're going to be able to help L.A. City Fire Department in the valley. That's when we got assigned uh, – California Task Force 2 got assigned to um, assist LA City Fire Department with the Northridge Meadows apartments collapsed, mm. um, where 17 people died on Reseda Boulevard and spent 24, 28 hours there making Swiss cheese out of that three-star apartment complex that had collapsed and trapped a number of people. Uh, a lot of live rescues were done at that place, but 17 people lost their lives. Finally, what's next for USAR in California? There has to be something on the horizon, so what is it? So there has been so much change over the last 20 years. What do you see as sort of the next thing? Something that needs to be looked at or maybe something that is being looked at? Well, um, obviously terrorism is one of those. um, There's a nexus to terrorism for this uh, disaster response and catastrophic event planning piece. We know that there are uh, bad players out there that would like to cause the kind of damage that you saw in 9-11 and the chaos that ensued. We know there's things like, you know, dirty bombs and nuclear suitcase devices. We know that there's other things out there that, you know, we have to be ready to respond to. We know that the earthquake catastrophic scenario is coming at some point. We know it can be be preceded or followed by landslides that cause massive damage. The kind of mud and debris flows we see after the fires like we just experienced in Santa Barbara. You know, the Cascadia subduction zone, tsunami event, clearly a potential catastrophe. 
level incident that could occur in the northern in northern California and, and Oregon. these are all very real possibilities. They're real, and the evidence seems to be growing that um, something coming from up north, tsunami wise, is something we really need to be ready for mm. in the Cascadia and even up toward Alaska. You know, they, you know, not to mention what comes south from places like Peru that could uh, affect some of our coastlines. But right. so th- those things, and um, there's this always some unknown thing that's going to surprise us. Do we have something else out there Hmm. that, um, you know, we've been fortunate in California to have kind of separation of disasters. In some cases, we'll get a wildfire disaster. Then we have, in this case, like Thomas fire, we had a week or so, usually longer, and then the mud and debris flows happened. Then another earthquake happened somewhere. And they've been separated largely, but what is going to be a big complication for us is if you have alignment of something like a, a catastrophic earthquake during a big wind event. Yeah. And possibly during all, an existing wildland fire um, siege that's already happening. Yeah. We've been lucky we haven't had those kinds of uh, stacked disasters. But in the Fire and Rescue Services and in Cal OES, we have to, we have to be planning for yeah. some of those outliers that can't happen here because it seems like the outliers do happen here. And this may sound silly, and feel free to, to reach over and smack me if you think it is silly. <laughs> but there are people out there, <laughs> ah, not yet, uh, there are people out there who also say, hey, one of these days, we're going to get it from space. There's going to be a an asteroid or something that makes it through in a fairly good... Su- we have little rocks that land on the surface of the Earth all the time. But if something big comes through, that could cause problems. We have to be looking at all potential in yeah. the state because it's such a large population that could be impacted by something like that close by or far away. Yeah. It may not be you know, the dinosaur ending scenario, right. but um, something like what has already happened in uh, Yellowstone you know, in eons ago, mm-hmm. something like that would be catastrophic level. Um, some of the planning we do on our catastrophic earthquake planning, for example, doesn't take into consideration, we don't really plan the worst case. We usually build the plans on what's most likely to happen, which was the, the scenario for the shakeout earthquake scenario. The shakeout exercise is built on what's the most likely scenario to happen if the San Andreas Fault ruptures. It doesn't take into account what could happen during a wind event if that happens. We purposely make it so that it's winnable and it's planable so that if you do get worse conditions, you can layer on the response to that. But we, we do want people to plan for what's most likely to happen. And what we found is that if you plan for that, you're usually taking pretty good precautions for the outliers, too. If you do the basic precautions, if you have stockpiles of food and water and you um, maybe have generators and you have taken those kind of precautions, you're going to be that much better off as individuals, and especially um, as responders, we want our families also to be prepared because if we're going into it, you want to make sure your family is good back home. And that's a lesson we need to keep reinforcing to all the Cal OES employees, to all the responders and their families. You know, we saw in Santa Barbara, some of those rescuers were isolated for several, you know, a couple of days or a day or so um, because of the mud and debris flow conditions. 
So, you know, you want to make sure your family is good back home. And that's uh, something for all of us to think about, you know, whenever we walk out the door, that you want your kids to know what the plan is and to have a backup plan and know where to go next and have uh, the ability to contact each other, make sure you're good or, you know, to make sure that immediate help isn't needed. And if it is, how are you going to get it to them? Right. Uh, That's a great way to end it, actually. Very good advice. Larry Collins, thanks Thanks very much. I appreciate it. Very nice to have you here. (laughs) Thanks, John. All right. Yes, Cal OES is lucky to have experienced talent like Deputy Chief Larry Collins. It allows us to do the job Californians expect of us, to plan, prepare, respond to, and help recover from any kind of disaster in our golden state. Special thanks to Chief Collins for his candor and his time, as well as everyone in our Office of Public Information. Thanks a lot for your help. I'm Sean Boyd. We'll see you next time. Take care and be safe out there. You've been listening to the Cal OES All Hazards Podcast. Don't forget to check out our podcast page where you can find past episodes along with show notes and links. And give us a social shout out. Tell others about us on Twitter and Facebook. And let us know what you think. We'd love to hear from you.